Section 12, Part 2, Chapter 5 of Atlantis, The Antediluvian World by Ignatius Loyola Donnelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Atlantis, The Antediluvian World by Ignatius Loyola Donnelly. Chapter 5 The Deluge Legends of America. It's a very remarkable fact, says Alfred Morey, that we find in America traditions of the deluge coming infinitely nearer to that of the Bible and the Chaldean religion than among any people of the Old World. It's difficult to suppose that the emigration that certainly took place from Asia into North America by the Kuril and Aleutian Islands, and still does so in our day, should have brought in these memories, since no trace is found of them among those Mongol or Siberian populations which were fused with the natives of the New World. The attempts that have been made to trace the origin of Mexican civilization to Asia have not as yet led to any sufficiently conclusive facts. Besides, had Buddhism, which we doubt, made its way into America, it could not have introduced a myth not found in its own scriptures. The cause of these similarities between the Diluvian traditions of the nations of the New World and that of the Bible remains, therefore, unexplained. The cause of these similarities can be easily explained. The legends of the flood did not pass into America by way of the Aleutian Islands, or through the Buddhists of Asia, but were derived from an actual knowledge of Atlantis, possessed by the people of America. Atlantis and the western continent had from an immemorial age held intercourse with each other. The great nations of America were simply colonies from Atlantis, sharing in its civilization, language, religion, and blood. From Mexico to the peninsula of Yucatan, from the shores of Brazil to the heights of Bolivia and Peru, from the Gulf of Mexico to the headwaters of the Mississippi River, the colonies of Atlantis extended, and therefore it is not strange to find, as Alfred Morey says, American traditions of the deluge coming nearer to that of the Bible and the Chaldean record than those of any people of the Old World. The most important among the American traditions are the Mexican, for they appear to have been definitively fixed by symbolic and mnemonic paintings before any contact with Europeans. According to these documents, the Noah of the Mexican cataclysm was Coxcox, called by certain people Teosepitli, or Tespi. He had saved himself, together with his wife, Chuxiquetzal, in a bark, or, according to other traditions, on a raft, made of cypress wood, Cupressus destaca. Paintings retracing the deluge of Coxcox have been discovered among the Aztecs, Miztecs, Zapotecs, Tlaxcaltecs, and Mecajocaneses. The tradition of the latter is still more strikingly in conformity with the story as we have it in Genesis and in Chaldean sources. It tells how Tespi embarked in a spacious vessel with his wife, his children, and several animals, and grain whose preservation was essential to the subsistence of the human race. When the great god Tezcatlipoca decreed that the waters should retire, Tesbe sent a vulture from the bark. The bird, feeding on the carcasses with which the earth was laden, did not return. Tesbe sent out other birds, of which the hummingbird only came back with a leafy branch in its beak. Then Tesbe, seeing that the country began to vegetate, left his bark on the mountain of Colhacoan. The document, however, that gives the most valuable information, says Lenormand, as to the cosmogony of the Mexicans, 
is one known as Codex Vaticanus, from the library where it is preserved. It consists of four symbolic pictures representing the four ages of the world, preceding the actual one. They were copied by Chobula from a manuscript anterior to the conquest, and accompanied by the explanatory commentary of Pedro de los Rios, a Dominican monk, who in 1566, less than fifty years after the arrival of Cortes, devoted himself to the research of indigenous traditions as being necessary to his missionary work. There were, according to this document, four ages of the world. The first was an age of giants, the great Mammalia, who were destroyed by famine. The second age ended in a conflagration. The third age was an age of monkeys. Then comes the fourth age, Antonatwin, son of water, whose number is ten times four hundred plus eight, or four thousand eight. It ends by a great inundation, a veritable deluge. All mankind are changed into fish, with the exception of one man and his wife, who save themselves in a bark made of the trunk of a cypress tree. The picture represents Matlaque, goddess of waters, and consort of Tlatloc, god of rain, as darting down toward earth. Coxcox and Choquitzel, the two human beings preserved, are seen seated on a tree trunk and floating in the midst of the waters. This flood is represented as the last cataclysm that devastates the earth. The learned Abbe Brasseur de Bourbourg translates from the Aztec language of the Codex Chimalpopica the following flood legend. This is the sun, called Nahuyatl, for water. Now the water was tranquil for forty years plus twelve, and the men lived for the third and fourth times. When the sun, Nahuyatl, came there, had passed away four hundred years plus two ages plus seventy-six years. Then all mankind was lost and drowned, and found themselves changed into fish. The sky came nearer the water. In a single day all was lost, and the day, Nahuishaktl, four-flower, destroyed all our flesh. And that year was that of Chekali, one house, and the day, Nahutatl, all was lost. Even the mountains sunk into the water, and the water remained tranquil, for fifty-two springs. Now at the end of the year the god Titlachohan had warned Nata and his spouse Nina, saying, Make no more wine of agave, but begin to hollow out a great cypress, and you will enter into it when in the month Tostantli the water approaches the sky. Then they entered in, and when the god had closed the door, he said, Thou shalt eat but one ear of maize, and thy wife one also. But as soon as they had finished they went out, and the water remained calm, for the wood no longer moved, and on opening it they began to see fish. Then they lit a fire by rubbing together pieces of wood, and they roasted fish. The god Kitalanque and Sitalantanak instantly looked down, said, Divine Lord, what is that fire that is making there? Why do they thus smoke the sky? At once Titlachuan Tezcatlipoaca descended. He began to chide, saying, Who has made this fire here? And seizing hold of the fish, he shaped their loins and heads, and they were transformed into dogs. Chichem. Here we note a remarkable approximation to Plato's account of the destruction of Atlantis. 
In one day and one fatal night, says Plato, there came mighty earthquakes and inundations that engulfed that warlike people. In a single day all was lost, says the Aztec legend. And instead of a rainfall of forty days and forty nights, as represented in the Bible, here we see, in a single day even the mountains sunk into the water. Not only the land on which the people dwelt who were turned into fish, but the very mountains of that land sunk into the water. Does not this describe the fate of Atlantis? In the Chaldean legend, the great goddess Ishtar wailed like a child, saying, I am the mother who gave birth to men, and, like to the race of fishes, they are filling the sea. In the account in Genesis, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. In the Chaldean legend we are told that Kashsistra also offered a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and the gods assembled like flies above the master of the sacrifice. But Bel came in a high state of indignation, just as the Aztec god did, and was about to finish the work of the deluge when the great god Ea took pity in his heart and interfered to save the remnant of mankind. These resemblances cannot be accidental, neither can they be the interpolations of Christian missionaries, for it will be observed the Aztec legends differ from the Bible in points where they resemble, on the one hand, Plato's record, and on the other, the Chaldean legend. The name of the hero of the Aztec story, Nata, pronounced with the broad sound of the A, is not far from the name of Noah, or Noe. The deluge of Genesis is a Phoenician, Semitic, or Hebraic legend, and yet strange to say the name of Noah, which occurs in it, bears no appropriate meaning in those tongues, but is derived from Aryan sources. Its fundamental root is Na, to which in all the Aryan languages attached the meaning of water, Greek Nain to flow, Greek Nama, water, Nympha, Neptunus, water deities, Lenormand and Chevalier, Ancient History of the East, Volume 1, page 15. We find the root Na repeated in the name of this Central American Noah, Nata, and probably in the word Nahuatl, the Age of Water. But still more striking analogies exist between the Chaldean legend and the story of the deluge, as told in the Popol Vuh, the sacred book of the Central Americans. Then the waters were agitated by the will of the heart of heaven, Huracan, and a great inundation came upon the heads of these creatures. They were engulfed, and a resinous thickness descended from heaven. The face of the earth was obscured, and a heavy darkening rain commenced, rain by day and rain by night. There was heard a great noise above their heads, as if produced by fire. Then there were men seen running, pushing each other, filled with despair. They wished to climb upon their houses, and the houses tumbling down fell to the ground. They wished to climb upon the trees, and the trees shook them off. They wished to enter into the grottoes, eaves, and the grottoes closed themselves before them. Water and fire contributed to the universal ruin at the time of the last great cataclysm, which preceded the fourth creation. Observe the similarities here to the Chaldean legend. There is the same graphic description of a terrible event. The black cloud is referred to in both instances. Also the dreadful noises, the rising water, the earthquake rocking the trees, overturning the houses, and crushing even the mountain caverns. 
the men running and pushing each other, filled with despair, says the Popol Vuh. The brother no longer saw his brother, says the Assyrian legend. And here I may note that this word Hurakan, the spirit of the abyss, the god of storm, the hurricane, is very suggestive, and testifies to an early intercourse between the opposite shores of the Atlantic. We find in Spanish the word Hurakan, in Portuguese, Furakan, in French, Uragan, in German, Danish, and Swedish, Orkan, all of them signifying a storm, while in Latin, Furo, or Furio, means to rage, and are not the old Swedish Hura, to be driven along, our own word, hurried, the Icelandic word Hura, to be rattled over frozen ground, all derived from the same root from which the god of the abyss, Hurakan, obtained his name? The last thing a people forgets is the name of their god. We retain to this day, in the names of the days of the week, the designations of four Scandinavian gods and one Roman deity. It seems to me certain, the above are simply two versions of the same event, that while ships from Atlantis carried terrified passengers to tell the story of the dreadful catastrophe to the people of the Mediterranean shores, other ships flying from the tempest bore similar awful tidings, to the civilized races around the Gulf of Mexico. The native Mexican historian, Ixtiltilchocl, gave this as the Toltec legend of the flood. It is found in the histories of the Toltecs that this age and first world, as they called it, lasted 1,716 years, and that men were destroyed by tremendous rains and lightning from the sky, and even all the land, without the exception of anything, and the highest mountains were covered up and submerged in water fifteen cubits deep, Caxtolmolotli. And here they added other fables of how men came to multiply from the few who escaped from this destruction, in a toplipetlacali, that this word nearly signifies a close chest, and how, after men had multiplied, they erected a very high zuquali, which is to-day a tower of great height, in order to take refuge in it should the second world, or age, be destroyed. Presently their languages were confused, and, not being able to understand each other, they went to different parts of the earth. The Toltecs, consisting of seven friends with their wives, who understood the same language, came to these parts, having first passed great land and seas, having lived in caves, and having endured great hardships in order to reach this land. They wandered one hundred four years through different parts of the world before they reached Huehuetlapalan, which is in Chetekpatl, five hundred twenty years after the flood. It will, of course, be said that this account, in those particulars where it agrees with the Bible, was derived from the teachings of the Spanish priests. But it must be remembered that Ixtlachitl was an Indian, a native of Tezuoco, a son of the queen, and that his relaciones were drawn from the archives of his family and the ancient writings of his nation. He had no motive to falsify documents that were probably in the hands of hundreds at that time. Here we see that the depth of the water over the earth, fifteen cubits, given in the Toltec legend, is precisely the same as that named in the Bible. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, that from Genesis chapter 7, page 20. In the two curious picture histories of the Aztecs preserved in Botorini collection, and published by Gemelli Carreri and others, there is a record of their migrations from their original location through various parts of the North American continent 
until their arrival in Mexico. In both cases their starting point is an island, from which they pass in a boat, and the island contains in one case a mountain, and in the other a high temple in the midst thereof. These things seem to be reminiscences of their origin in Atlantis. In each case we see the crooked mountain of the Aztec legends, the Colcoacan, looking not unlike the bent mountain of the monk Cosmos. In the legends of the Chibchas of Bogota we seem to have distinct reminiscences of Atlantis. Bochica was there, leading divinity. During two thousand years he employed himself in elevating his subjects. He lived in the sun, while his wife Chia occupied the moon. This would appear to be an allusion to the worship of the sun and moon. Beneath Bochica, in their mythology, was Chipchuan. In an angry mood he brought a deluge on the people of the tableland. Bochica punished him for this act, and obliged him ever after, like Atlas, to bear the burden of the earth on his back. Occasionally he shifts the earth from one shoulder to another, and this causes earthquakes. Here we have allusions to an ancient people who during thousands of years were elevated in the scale of civilization, and were destroyed by a deluge, and with this is associated an Atlantean god bearing the world on his back. We find even the rainbow appearing in connection with this legend. When Bochica appeared in answer to prayer to quell the deluge, he is seated on a rainbow. He opened a breach in the earth at Tequendama, through which the waters of the flood escaped, precisely as we have seen them disappearing through the crevice in the earth near Bambis in Greece. The Toltecs traced their migrations back to a starting point called Aztlan, or Atlan. This could be no other than Atlantis. This is from Bancroft's Native Races, volume 5, page 221. The original home of the Nahutlaks was Aztlan, the location of which has been the subject of much discussion. The causes that led to their exodus from that country can only be conjectured, but they may be supposed to have been driven out by their enemies, for Aztlan is described as a land too fair and beautiful to be left willingly in the mere hope of finding a better. Again from Bancroft. The Aztecs also claim to have come originally from Aztlan, their very name, Aztecs, was derived from Aztlan, and they were Atlanteans. The Popple View tells us that after the migration from Aztlan, three sons of the king of the Quiches, upon the death of their father, determined to go as their fathers had ordered, to the east, on the shores of the sea whence their fathers had come, to receive the royalty, bidding adieu to their brothers and friends, and promising to return. Doubtless they passed over the sea when they went to the east to receive the royalty. Now this is the name of the Lord, of the monarch of the people of the east, where they went. And when they arrived before the Lord Nakchit, the name of the great Lord, the only judge, whose power was without limit, behold, he granted them the sign of royalty and all that represents it, and the insignia of royalty, all the things, in fact, which they brought on their return, and which they went to receive from the other side of the sea, the art of painting from Tulan, a system of writing, they said, for the things recorded in their histories. It's from Bancroft's Native Races, volume 5, page 553, and the Popple View, page 294. This legend not only points to the East as the place of origin of these races, but also proves that this land of the East, this Aztlan, this Atlantis, exercised dominion over the colonies in Central America, and furnished them with the essentials of civilization. How completely does this agree with the statement of Plato 
that the kings of Atlantis held a dominion over parts of the great opposite continent. Professor Valentini, in Maya Archaeology, page 23, describes an Aztec picture in the work of Gamele, Il Giro del Mondo, volume 6, of the migration of the Aztecs from Aztlan. Out of a sheet of water there projects the beak of a mountain. On it stands a tree, and on the tree a bird spreads its wings. At the foot of the mountain peak there comes out of the water the heads of a man and a woman. The one wears on his head the symbol of his name, Coxcox, a pheasant. The other head bears that of a hand with a bouquet, Chukchitl, a flower, and Quetzal, shining in green gold. In the foreground is a boat out of which a naked man stretches out his hand imploringly to heaven. Now turn to the sculpture in the flood tablet on the great calendar stone. There you'll find represented the flood, and with great emphasis by the accumulation of all those symbols with which the ancient Mexicans conveyed the idea of water. A tub of standing water, drops springing out, not two, as heretofore in the symbol for atl, water, but four drops, the picture for moisture, a snail, above a crocodile, the king of the rivers. In the midst of these symbols you notice the profile of a man with a fillet, and a smaller one of a woman. There can be no doubt these are the Mexican Noah, Coxcox, and his wife, Chuckchquetzal, and at the same time it's evident, calendar stone we know was made in A.D. 1478, that the story of them, and the pictures representing the story, have not been invented by the Catholic clergy, but really existed among those nations long before the conquest. The above figure represents the flood tablets on the great calendar stone. When we turn to the uncivilized Indians of America, while we still find legends referring to the deluge, they are, with one exception, in such garbled and uncouth forms that we can only see glimpses of the truth shining through a mass of fable. The following tradition was current among the Indians of the Great Lakes. In former times the father of the Indian tribes dwelt toward the rising sun, Having been warned in a dream that a deluge was coming upon the earth, he built a raft on which he saved himself, with his family and all the animals. He floated thus for several months. The animals, who at that time spoke, loudly complained and murmured against him. At last a new earth appeared, on which he landed with all the animals, who from that time lost the power of speech as a punishment for their murmurs against their deliverer. According to Father Charlevoix, the tribes of Canada and the valley of the Mississippi, relate in their rude legends that all mankind was destroyed by a flood, and that the good spirit, to repeople the earth, had changed animals into man. It is to J. S. Cole, we owe our acquaintance with the version of the Chippeways, full of grotesque and perplexing touches, in which the man saved from the deluge is called Menaboshu. To know if the earth be drying, he sends a bird, the diver, out of his bark, then becomes the restorer of the human race and the founder of the existing society. A clergyman who visited the Indians northwest of the Ohio in 1764 met at a treaty a party of Indians from the west of the Mississippi. They informed him that one of their most ancient traditions was that a great while ago they had a common father, who lived toward the rising of the sun, and governed the whole world, that all the white people's heads were under his feet, that he had twelve sons by whom he administered the government, that the twelve sons behaved very badly, and tyrannized over the people, 
abusing their power, that the great spirit, being thus angry with them, suffered the white people to introduce spiritous liquors among them, made them drunk, stole the special gift of the great spirit from them, and by this means usurped power over them, and ever since the Indians' heads were under the white people's feet. This from Boudinot's Star in the West, page 111. Here we note that they looked toward the rising sun, toward Atlantis, for the original home of their race, that this region governed the whole world, that it contained white people, who were at first a subject race, but who subsequently rebelled and acquired dominion over the darker races. We will see reason hereafter to conclude that Atlantis had a composite population, and that the rebellion of the Titans in Greek mythology was the rising up of a subject population. End of chapter 5, section 12, part 2, recording by Mike Harris.